Welcome to the Biblical Languages Podcast, brought to you by Biblingo. I am Kevin Grosso, your host for this episode, and I'm excited to talk with Chiara Gianolo today about word order in negative sentences in New Testament Greek. Welcome to the show, Chiara. Thank you. Thank you very much. So just a little bit about, a little bit about Chiara. She graduated in classical philology at the University of Pisa and received her undergraduate diploma from the Scuola Normale Superiore. After obtaining her doctoral degree in general linguistics from the University of Pisa, she taught and participated in numerous research projects at various Italian and German universities. Since July 2016, she has been a researcher and lecturer at the University of Bologna, and her research focus is on historical linguistics and how it can be informed by general linguistics. So today we're going to focus on a paper she wrote on negative concord and word order in the Greek Bible and New Testament. So if you don't know what any of that means, we're going to explain all the terms slowly. And one of the things that she does in this paper is she um, brings up this minimal pair example of Mark 14.60 and Matthew 26.62, um, which is really interesting. I, I When I saw that, I I had just never noticed that minimal pair. Um, so I thought we would start here with these, how Mark frames the question, um, this question that Jesus has asked, and how Matthew frames this question and talk about um, the differences in syntax and the differences in, you know, the the negative sentence. So here we have in Mark 14, 60, um, I'll just read part of it in English, and then I'll say the part in Greek. So it says, And the high priest got up in their midst and questioned Jesus, saying, Uk apokrine uden. So we have uk, and then apokrine uden. And then Matthew 26, 62, And the high priest got up and said to him, Uden apokrine. In your paper, you define some of these terms, negative marker, negative concord item. So can you just use these two sentences to define these terms for us? Absolutely. So it's it's actually nice to find uh, such minimal pairs because in this case we know the pragmatic situation is really the same. So we expect these two sentences to to mean the same thing, and so we are allowed to really focus on form and structure. Um, and then uh, we see that when we study negation, which is uh, uh, as Kevin told you what uh, what I did in this case, uh, we. Uh, have to uh, take into consideration various elements because the um, expression of negation is scattered uh, in the sentence and in our lexicon uh, um, across different items. Uh, Every language has a negative marker and this is basically the main particle or adverb you use to negate a predicate, to negate a verbal predicate. So here in, uh, in, uh, in in the first example we heard that would be ok for uh, for uh, Greek, and we know that this has some different forms, so uk or uh or u, depending on the surrounding context, but that's basically the same object. English would have not. So in this case, uh, these are really negative markers, and since every language can express negation, every language has a negative marker. There is a difference in how this marker can be. Here we have like a, um, a particle that can stay by itself, uh, in other languages, we would have a particle that's more critic to the verb, so it's more more linked to it. Uh, in other languages, like German, we have a real adverb, like nicht, so a stronger, heavier element. That's the negative marker. But then, 
we see that also nominal elements can be marked for negation. And here we will have time to discuss that languages differ a bit concerning how they do it. We have a lot of variation, but what we have in, in Greek, in the example we heard, uk, apokrine, uden, we have this uden element. And this is what we called in, in the traditional terms a negative indefinite. In a bit uh, more theoretically mature uh, formulation. We call it a negative concord item, short NCI, and I guess we will use this uh, abbreviation uh, um, sometime. So NCI, negative concord item, is an indefinite that has a mark for negation. It can negate a sentence by itself, and that's what we see in Matthew when we have uden apocrine, but it can also co-occur with the negative marker building a sort of chain, so expressing a single negation meaning, even if there are multiple elements. Yeah, yeah. So that's really helpful. So maybe we can um, just talk about how we might translate this into English and use that to talk about some of these other terms. So we will get to, you, you mentioned in your paper, three types of negation systems. So I think this will help us to clarify here. So when we say uk apokrine uden, you know, in, in English, we could say something like, will you not answer anything or are you not answering anything? Here, anything would be close to uden. And that would be one way to translate this. Other option, if we translate it very literally, are you not answering nothing? Tell us about the difference between that in English, nothing and anything and how that um, is different than English or Greek system. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. I think I can I can go through it. So uh, the first thing I would say is a, a word for word translation, which we actually find in some medieval translations, right, in uh, medieval European languages, would give the wrong meaning here, right? Uh, are you not answering nothing? The two negation would cancel each other out. It would be a very odd sentence to use anyway, but uh, in the end, it would end up in an affirmative question. Um, but this is not what the Greek means. So the Greek is, is really plain here. It just wants to ask, uh, is it really nothing that you're going to answer? Is it really true that you're not answering, basically? Okay. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I think, as you say, so the translation would in English would be with anything, but we should be aware of the fact that anything is, is a different object, so it doesn't have all the um, distributional possibilities that an element like then has. So, for instance, imagine that we have a, a, a context in Greek where someone says, what do you answer? And the person says, nothing, uden. It, the person could use uden as a negative answer. But if someone asks you in English, what do you answer? You cannot answer anything, right? You would need to answer nothing. So this means that anything can appear with a negative meaning only if it is connected to another negative element. So for instance, to the negative marker, I do not answer anything but it cannot be negative by itself. So that's the basic difference. And, and that's the difference between, uh, uh, that's why in, in modern linguistics, we need to distinguish those terms. So we would say that English nothing is a negative indefinite because it is negative everywhere. So that's the same as this NCI, right? I mean, it's very close to an NCI, but the difference is that it has to be by itself. Right, you don't have Concord in the English, right? 
so it wants it is so it is more negative in a way it is so negative that it wants to stay by itself so i answer nothing it can stay after the verb and it can negate the whole sentence and in a language like uh, like italian or, or modern greek you would never be able to do that you would have an nci so an element that is able to be negative by itself in short answers but if it's in a sentence in certain position, then it needs to concord. It needs to build this uh, a chain with uh, a negative marker. It's not sufficient by itself to negate. And then we have elements like anything that always need another negative element to be negative and can never negate by themselves, not even in, in short answers. So it's sort of a climb. Nothing is the strongest negative element who then is intermediate, it's an NCI, and anything is what we call a negative polarity item. So it's not negative by itself. Right. And so to bring go back to these examples, right? The, the, the example in Matthew 26, it says, Uden apocrine, right? So here we have the NCI without the negative item. And so here, a more literal translation would be fine, right? You are answering nothing. And, and that, that makes total sense. Jesus is not answering. This is the high priest questioning Jesus at his trial. Um, and he's not answering anything. In English, we would say, you are answering nothing, um, or you are not answering anything. Right. So tell us about this uden here, apo, uden apocrine, mm-hmm. is is an NCI, um, but it can be used without negation, right? Like in Matthew 26, or with negation, like in Mark 14. So tell us about this difference. Yeah, so here we really need to go into the, the, the subtypes of, uh, of negative concord, basically. And actually, what I'm telling you is not uncontroversial. Uh, sorry, I used two negations, so <laughs> that means it's an affirmation. <laughs> it is controversial. <laughs> so um, basically, um, this is just a theory. One of the many theories that have tried to distinguish uh, in a theoretically sound way elements like nothing, uh, then, and anything. Okay, so some people actually find uh, this more complicated than what I'm telling you, which is already complicated, but somehow um, finds a theoretical way to to systematically distinguish them. Okay, Um, how? Well, distinguishing different types of languages and saying that there are double negation languages. And this would be a language like uh, standard English, because English has many different varieties, but standard English, what you learn at school, or standard German, or Latin, those languages are double negation languages. So every time you use two negatively marked elements, they cancel each other out. That's why we say double negation. Double negation ends up being an affirmation. But then you have those negative concord languages. Those languages are basically able to have multiple negatively marked elements that build this sort of interpretive chain, right? So they count as one at some point. It would be very easy if they were all the same, So, but we know that they're not. So we know that uh, classical Greek is different from modern Greek in this respect. So both are negative concordant languages, but they behave differently. Italian is a negative concordant language, but behaves differently from a negative concordant language like Romanian. So we have to distinguish two types. One is called strict negative concord language, and the other one is called non-strict negative concord language. Now, modern Greek, standard modern Greek, as well as Romanian, for instance, those are, and if you think uh, Slavic languages, those are strict negative concord language. 
that means they have those NCIs, those indefinites, but when they have them, they always have to occur with a negative marker close to the verb. Okay? As we saw, uh, New Testament Greek is different, right? And behaves like Italian. And uh, we will see also classical Greek behave like that. Uh, there is an asymmetry. So it's called a non-strict negative concord language, meaning that there's no strict correspondence between the presence of an NCI and the presence of, of a negative marker. Namely, uh, I think that the, the minimal pair shows us uh, this well, right? So if the indefinite is after the verb, occurs post-verbally, then you always need something before the verb to make the sentence negative. So in this case, you would have uk, apokrine, uden, because uden is after the verb. And so you need something before the verb to make the sentence really negative. But if the indefinite is already before the verb, where you need this, this negative mark, then it cannot occur with another negative element. And so you have uden, apokrine, um, a Greek person would have not uttered uden uk apokrine because in that case we would have had two negations cancelling each other out. So no strict negative concord can deceive you because if you see something like uden apokrine, you think, oh, that's like English, right? You, you just need an indefinite and, and you negate a sentence. But you have to look at the broader picture and see what happens when the indefinite is after the verb. And then you realize that it, this is a negative concord language. Yeah, so so again in in English then uden like in in Mark's example is is if you were to to just translate very literally according to also the syntax, right? Um you would have to translate uden with a a negative polarity item like anything. But if you did it in Matthew 26, you would have to translate it with um a negative indefinite like nothing. Um so this is where it can and what's so interesting right is that you know, many people talk about Greek word order, like it's just free, anything goes, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, but but here, this seems to be very systematic. If the negative, um, you know, concord item is before the verb, you're saying you 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 never have the negation, or if you do have the negation, you know, I, I don't think we have this in the New Testament, but it would be it would be negated. Um, so that would be something like, you know, he didn't say nothing, right? Um, which which means he said something in again in standard modern English because people would say that all the time. <laughs> exactly. Let's remark that. Yes. What is the difference here between? Is there a difference between these two sentences in in Mark and Matthew? And and what does the negative concord item contribute semantically? And and specifically thinking here about you know this difference between anything and nothing. Um, where anything, you know, we've called a negative polarity item. Um, there's been, uh, you know, like we can't get into <laughs> the semantics of NPIs right now. Um, just massive literature on, on what NPIs are doing and people are still figuring this out. Um, but you know, it, 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 the general idea is that when it's found under negation, you're, you're strengthening negation in some way, right? Um, we didn't answer anything, um, means there was not a single thing that was uttered. So is the negative concord item doing the same thing in in when it follows negation or what is it doing? 
That's a very, very uh, good question. That's a very sharp question. Uh, it's difficult to answer because, again, well, for instance, I can answer from the perspective of a romance speaker and give you the intuition on that. Um, I think that this intuition should also should apply to all uh, languages with negative concord atoms, but uh, this is, of course, so we have to be conscious of the fact that this is a theoretical move, basically, right? Yeah. Uh, so that said, the um, uh, consensus opinion here is that uh, negative polarity items, so things like anything, are more emphatic. So exactly as you, Kevin, were saying, they are used to strengthen negation, uh, for instance, in situations where you really want to exclude uh, even the uh, slightest possibility of an exception to what you're saying. Okay. And so, uh, that's very famous work on English, on, on, on the behavior of anything, which actually is different when it's stressed, anything, and when it's not stressed. So that, that would open up, right? As you say, uh, really a Pandora's box of, of, of opinions on that. But yeah. the idea is that basically negative polarity items are domain wideners. So, um, there's no difference in the logic, but there is a difference in the pragmatics. Uh, if I tell you, sorry, I can't, uh, you are always going to ask me, well, are you really sure that you don't have a minute in the next two weeks, right? Uh, if I say I can't at all, right, I don't have time at all, something like that, and I use a strengthener, then I'm really excluding uh, all those remote possibilities that we are trying to, to find, right? And, and this would be the function of a negative polarity item. So uh, logically, of course, we always have a negation, but pragmatically, uh, a, a sentence containing a negative polarity item is stronger because it kind of tells you, even if, even if you thought of very marginal cases, still the answer would be no. Okay, so right. that's that's the idea. This is, according to the consensus opinion, absent in negative concord items. So if in Italian I say non ho visto nessuno, I didn't see anyone, but I have nessuno, so it's like udeis in in Greek. Uh, there's no emphasis at all. So it's a, it's a very it's a very common way to negate a sentence with a post-verbal object. Right. And so if we translate this, this to Greek, then we would say, okay, since Greek has um, NCIs, they are, so negative concord items, they are supposed not to be um, um, emphatic because they are just the plain way right, to, to negate. And so we expect basically synonymity between our minimal pair sentences, right? Because uh, then would be the same of then before the verb. Still, we, we don't have the native, uh, the native uh, opinion here, of course, and um, it is true that the pre-verbal position is uh, very clearly connected to focus, and so we could expect, uh, especially for this kind of Greek, where object, verb, word order is becoming less and less uh, frequent, that having an object, verb, question would amount actually to some, to some emphasis. It's really hard to prove that. So that's so that's interesting. So you're saying that the one in Matthew without the negative marker, we, we actually might say is emphatic in some way, you know, again, being able to, to translate with an NPI in English, like anything. Um, but the one with the negative marker it might not be because the the object is in its normal position and not in a focused position. Yes, yes. Yeah, so, and, and, and you know, uh, like you said, we don't know, um, but but it's. I, I think the point here, right? 
one of the points is that this is a syntactic phenomenon. The, the fact that you always see this difference co-occur with, you know, the, the word order. So you, you, you never have the negative marker when the, the NCI is in before the verb suggests that, you know, something, it might just be something grammatical, right? It might not be semantic. It might just be, okay, this is how it works in the syntax. So, so that really brings us to to the syntax. So, this is all introduction to um, word order, right? So, you you try to answer two questions in this paper, um, and I'm just read them really quick, and then we'll focus on the on the second one. So, the first one is: Can data from biblical and New Testament Greek help us understand the diachronic shift from a non-strict to a strict negative concord system in the history of Greek? Modern Greek is strict. Right, and so what? What's going to happen is you're always going to have this um, NCI co-occur with the negative marker. So if you have uden, you're always going to have u with it. Exactly. Right. Yes. So your second question. So 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 the question number one is like, can um, biblical New Testament Greek? So you're you're focusing on the Septuagint also, which we're not going to really get into. But um, can data from this period help us to see this shift to a strict? native concord system um and then the question we'll focus on number two is do general changes in word order at the level of the clause taking place in post-classical greek influence the system of negation does this have an impact on future change so can you just tell us what are the changes in word order from classical to new testament greek and and then spell out for us why this matters for this discussion Yes, so we come to the word order issue. So we, we discuss word order because we saw that this um, combination or non-combination of negative items depends on, on position. But now we come to the bigger picture, so to, to the connection with the general sentence of the clause. So what is crucial f- for my discussion is what changes in the, at the level of the sentence, uh, the, the, the strong decrease of verb final orders. Okay, so this is basically what, what summarizes it. What we see going from classical Greek to post-classical and what becomes particularly clear in New Testament Greek is that uh, uh, verb final orders remarkably decrease. Okay, And this is something that we, uh, well, when I say verb final, I'm uh, um, combining here sentences that are really ending with a verb, but also sentences that, where the verb follows all the arguments. Okay, So maybe there's something after the verb, but we might treat it as a sort of syntactic satellite. We're not that much interested in it. So what happens, uh, as I think many of our hearers will, uh, will know, is that uh, we have a very strong increase in V, SO orders, so orders where the verb precedes both the subject and the object, and also an increase in SVO orders, so orders where the subject precedes the verb and the object follows it. Uh, We know that those were possible also in classical Greek, so this is a vexed question. Uh, We know that it's hard to find a basic word order for classical Greek. What, but what's really clear is that OV was, was much more frequent, right? So the situation where the object precedes the verb, much more frequent than what we see in, in New Testament Greek. So that's the main change I'm interested in. And then the question is, as you were saying, how does this impact on, on, on the syntax of negation, right? And the point would be, if the, those indefinites, those NCIs, follow the fate of all other especially object arguments, right? Here we are very much interested in object arguments, but also in subject arguments when we think of the increase 
of VSO. So we can also have a, a subject MCI following the verb. Well, then, in this case, um, if they follow the verb, recall that then we would have uh, the concord pattern. So before the verb, we would have the negative marker. Now, if these orders increase, I expect uh, to see so many more negative real negative concord, unambiguous, let's say, negative concord patterns, where I have a negative marker, the verb, and then after the verb, the negative uh, um, concord item, the NCI, be it a subject or an object. Okay? And my, my, my intuition was, and, but we should say it, it wasn't really confirmed by the data, so <laughs> spoiler, it's not really how it goes. But my intuition was if it were the case, so if NCIs behaved as all the other arguments and ended up being more frequently post-verbal, then I expect uh, the evidence for this constant duplication of negation, so negative marker, NCI, to be so frequent that possibly it can obliterate uh, the other configuration where uh, we don't have this uh, uh, co-occurrence because the NCI is before the verb. And this could have an effect then on the acquisition of, of the language by further generations, right? Because when, when you don't see a, a pattern, then it's really hard to learn it. And, and I thought this could be a way to go towards a strict system. So to enforce a system where whenever you have a negative concord item, there will systematically be also a, a negative marker, an adverb or a particle uh, close to the, before the verb. Right, right. So so then the basic idea is because we have the difference in the relative position of the verb and object in classical versus New Testament Greek, we we might expect to see New Testament Greek put because because the the native concord item like uden, right, always would go after the verb or normally would go after the verb in the in the normal word order, right? right? And you would have to then have a negative marker then you might say, okay, well, this is why eventually it becomes a strict system, right? right. So a, a possible scenario, let's say. Right. Yes. So, so basically what, what we're saying is that in, like in Mark, right? right. The normal order of the verb and object in New Testament Greek is, is followed here, right? It is verb object. And so, so that sort of order um, is requires this negative marker, requires native concord. And so if we always have that order, it would just eventually become a strict system. What is interesting about this, right, is that that's, that's not really what you find. And so it seems then that the, the order of these negative concord items in New Testament Greek is special. In some way, it's following classical Greek, but it's also just, it's not following the normal word order of, you know, regular indicative non-negated clauses. Is that, is that Fair? Exactly. That's absolutely fair. Uh, and uh, that's exactly what, what, what uh, I found by looking at, uh, at New Testament Greek. So this, uh, as you say, right, uh, I would have expected Mark 1460 to become the most frequent order and uh, Matthew 2662 to be a receding order. But actually, uh, uh, it's not true. So this is true for all other objects but not for uh, negative concord items. And so basically uh, what I concluded from my study, and we can talk a bit more about that, is that actually it's not that surprising because I saw and people before me saw it happening in other languages. Those elements are quite conservative in their, in their syntax. 
because they are quantificational, they are somehow more grammatically so uh, entrenched in the grammatical structure, and and probably their positioning is motivated not just by their being objects or subjects, but also by their providing quantification, existential quantification in this case, and negation, so providing uh, elements of the logical language that somehow have to be in a special position in the clause. So they're more bound to the pre-verbal area than other objects, and they resist this change as long as they can. Yeah, yeah. So, so, and I, I thought this data was um was super interesting. So I'm just looking right now at Table Two on on uh, page six. So this is data that you present for the relative position of objects and you compare Homer, Herodotus, and the New Testament. So in Homer, uh, you have pre-verbal objects are 4,995 and post-verbal objects are 2,451. So about double the amount of um, pre-verbal objects than post-verbal objects. And then Herodotus is like split right down the middle. 804 pre-verbal objects, 753 post-verbal objects, you know, basically the same. And then the New Testament is exactly the opposite of Homer. You have 997 pre-verbal objects and 2,084 post-verbal objects. So again, about double in post-verbal objects. And I don't know, um, does this, do you know if this list includes for the pre-verbal objects, does it include NCIs? Uh, I, I think so. So this data is not uh, from my own research. It comes from Giuseppe Celano's research. And he acted, uh, um, of course, in, in a, um, well, uh, guided by his computational linguist mind, right? So uh, he wanted to have results and, and he couldn't annotate uh, that long. So it, he took everything in. Um, full nominal phrases as well as pronouns. And so NCIs are here, but also, uh, which is I think even more complicated, also personal pronouns, which we know tend to be uh, clitic, uh, tend to occupy positions due to their prosodic weight. So uh, those data have to be taken with some with a grain of salt, but I think they're really indicative of, of the big shift that's happening, right? Then that it's it's for the philologists to really go and, and, and distinguish between classes of items. Right, right. So so then back to to these NCIs. So how, how do NCIs compare in classical Greek? So in classical Greek we have we have a non strict system, right? The same as New Testament Greek. Um, but we have this tendency anyway, for for the object to come before the verb. Um, so how does it compare to, to New Testament Greek in terms of, you, you know, do, do in classical Greek, do we just pretty much always have uden apokrine? Or do we also have, you know, uk apokrine uden co-occurring, you know, with, with some amount of frequency as well? Well, so it's it's a minority pattern. So we tendentially we have uden apokrine. So that would have been the classical Greek way to to say that. Yes. So is there a significant difference between that and the New Testament then? Um, 
Well, there are more. So it's it's difficult to say because, for instance, I uh, I studied this uh, for classical Greek, but in that case, since the numbers are so big, I only looked at masculine and feminine to avoid the neuter, right? So I have numbers for that because I didn't want to check every time if uden was adverbial or was a real argument. It's it's, it's a huge work, and I did it for the New Testament, but it's it's uh, it's hard. So I didn't do it for for classical Greek, and in the the case of um, of classical Greek, I have uh, orders where you see that if you look at udais, only masculine and feminine accusative forms, then you see that uh, um, well, actually, tendentially they, they tend to be more. I found more subjects than objects, which is mm-hmm. already. Um, so when when I looked at the, also the nominative, sorry, I, I forgot to say that. So if I compare accusative forms with the uh, nominative forms, nominative forms are more frequent um, for some reason, and uh, both subjects and objects tend to appear before the verb. Okay, so for instance, I have uh, um, well thirty cases of preverbal object udais, right, versus fourteen. Right, uh, cases of postverbal uh, udais, which makes up for only four point six percent of my of my data. Um, and for the for the subjects, it's even clearer. So I have uh, one hundred and twenty preverbal subjects versus uh, thirty eight uh, postverbal subjects. So uh, the tendency is to have the indefinite before the verb, and that's why actually classical Greek in some cases looks like Latin. So it looks mm-hmm. like a double negation language because you don't have uh, um, the duplication uh, of the negative marker on the verb. But actually then we have ample evidence that it is not like that because we can have many, um, many other elements um, in post-verbal position that gives us uh, uh, clear evidence that Classical Greek was a non-strict uh, negative concord language. But just to summarize the answer to your question, then what changes in New Testament Greek is that, yes, I cannot quantify it precisely yet because the data are not comparable. But yes, um, situations where I have post-verbal NCIs are certainly more than what I find in Classical Greek, but they're not as many as to substantiate uh, my hypothetical scenario that this could have led to a change in the grammar. They are more, as uh, as um, so probably uh, we can even I- imagine that there was some register difference, that they were more re- more frequent in the spoken language and less frequent in the written. Uh, of course, it's, it's really difficult to say, but when we stay to the letter of the New Testament, then we see that uh, there is a strong conservative tendency to put them before the verb. Right. So, so then classical Greek is pretty consistently uden apokrine, and New Testament Greek can really be either, but and, and so so I, I I'm and I know this is not exactly New Testament Greek. I mean, the assumption would be that at some point in in Greek, uk apokrine uden becomes the only order possible. Well, it has to be right because in modern Greek, that is the only order possible. Um, so the question is when that happens exactly, um, and so you're saying you know it might be happening. A little bit maybe in New Testament Greek, but it's not happening in the sense that, you know, that other order is not possible. Exactly. Or that it triggers, that it, the frequency can be expected to trigger a reanalysis or a change. No. Right, right. I think happened there. So, well, it's, it's an open question. That's something that really people just started to, to study. 
Uh, and we know that we have the big problem of uh, the documentation. So Greek is documented throughout its history, but the kind of documentation is, is very different. And literary texts don't help us that much because they start becoming really conservative. That's why we are actually very interested in New Testament Greek, because we are convinced that apart from, of course, stylistical influence from the um, from biblical language in general, it is a genuine uh, variety and we see it as a revolutionary uh, variety of Greek somehow, right? Um, but um, for instance, I think there's very important ongoing work by Nikos Liosis. He's looking at papyri and I think that's what we should do. So to look at texts that are uh, represent late Greek, but a sort of Greek that is not really subject to uh, atticism or other... Um, kind of normative pressure and he finds more strict patterns with uh, pre-nominal uh, NCIs so he finds things like uden uk apokrine where the two are not cancelling each other out but are um, actually creating a strict negative concord pattern okay <laughs> i have to say i i don't find this uh, in the new testament and i don't find this in the in the septuagint uh, for that matter so um, but it might be one tendency that explains right, the birth of, um, of a strict negative concord. I'm not that convinced, though, if I might say, because, well, since my hypothetical scenario doesn't hold so that the uka avocrino then becomes so frequent that it obliterates all the rest, then I'm led to uh, a parallelism with the, the history of Latin, which is actually what I focus on in my uh, usual life, um, <laughs> and uh, uh, in the history of Latin, you see exactly what happens in the New Testament Greek. So all the objects start to become post-verbal. So also there we have a macro uh, change, a gradual change from OV to, to from an OV grammar to a VO grammar. But uh, the negative indefinites resist longer in pre-verbal position, and this leads to their death, to their disappearance. So what happens there is then lexical substitution. So basically, you never actually reach a language where something like uden uk apokrine becomes the grammar. But you, you create a situation where udeis, udemi, uden die out and are substituted by new indefinites. So in, 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 uh, I was thinking about what you said earlier, Kevin, because at some point to stress uh, emphatic reading of negation, you said not one single, right? Um, and, and this is exactly the pattern that we see uh, for the birth of the new romance indefinite. So uh, Latin nihil nemo die out and are substituted by things like nec unus, not even one, not a single one. And if you think about modern Greek, you have kan enas, uh, where you have one and this kan, kai an, that uh, can be argued to be, again, a sort of scalar, uh, emphatic particle. And so what I think is, well, if udeis, udemio then resist in preverbal position, this means their death, because they're not flexible enough to fit into the new system. And that's why people start to use more things like anything. So things like kanenas, tipota, that are born post-verbal. And that's right. how it goes. But, but this is up to you know, further studies. It's really just, at the moment, uh, speculation. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting, though. Um, you know, just basically the language, just killing off a lexical item and adopting a new one, right? I mean, which, which makes sense, just because 
you know, you don't want one lexical item behaving syntactically different <laughs> if it's an object than everything else. So let's go to subjects now just a little bit. I know you focus a lot on on objects. Just to touch on this briefly, so you say, um, for my survey, Horix 2007 analysis, which attributes SVO to subject focalization, adequately accounts for the distribution of subject NCIs. So can you explain why? You know, why does it adequately ac- account for the distribution of subject NCIs? And does this mean that subject NCIs are typically considered to be in focus? Yes, basically, uh, for me, it means what you just said, right? So here I follow also uh, scholarship on the on the topic. Uh, negative concord items, but also negative indefinites, uh, they uh, tend to be in focus positions. So for Italian, this has been argued at length, for instance, by Mara Frascarelli, that the position where you put a subject like nessuno uh, with an NCI is different from the position of other subjects. It's really tied to the focus position. Why? Well, because of a semantic logic need to have the scope of negation match the scope of focus, basically. So focus and negation like to have the same same scope. And that's why an element that brings about a negation like an NCI wants to, at the same time, mark the focus part of the clause and the, and so I have a domain that is that is very clearly marked. So that would be the theoretical explanation for that. So what I want to say with the statement you you just read is that for me, if I believe this, then I interpret subject NCIs in focus positions. And so uh, an analysis of SVO in New Testament Greek, like Horrocks, where for him every time you have SVO, you have a focused focalized subject. For me, it could work. But we know that uh, that's not the end to the debate on uh, <laughs> subject verb object in general, right? Right, right. So, so I guess the the question is so thinking about subject. No one said something. Um, so no one is would be the you know negative indefinite, right? Right. So you're saying that when when we have SVO order, we pretty much always see no one as focused. I mean, I mean, so. Again, thinking in English here, if I stress no one, it becomes sort of like, you know, obviously it's focused, but it it becomes sort of like an NPI, right? No one said anything. I'm strengthening the negation, right? Um, So so I guess the, the, the question is like, does that always have to be the case? I can certainly think of scenarios where you just said no one said anything or no one said something where no one is not focused if that is the normal position for these elements, it would be very hard to tell the difference mm-hmm. between a non-focused subject NCI and a focused subject NCI. I mean, do you have clear examples of, okay, this has to be focus, you know, in subject position? I know I'm I'm kind of like off script here, so if you can't pull one out, <laughs> that's okay. But or or just just in general from you from your reading of the data, do they all typically seem to be focused? Mm-hmm. It's it's really hard to say because again this uh, is something that has to do with your interpretation and you can never there's there's no explicit formal marks for that right so right I tend to agree uh, with what you say that uh, with your intuition for for English that I share for Italian that I can have an emphatic reading of a subject negative something so for you it's a negative indefinite for Italian it will be an NCI and then uh, and the non-focused one so that's uh, that can be differences in emphasis. If this means that they have different positions, I'm not sure because also for focus we uh, 
um, actually mean many different things in linguistics. And here it could simply be informational focus. So it doesn't need to be an emphatic focus. So I could say, okay, there is a focus position which can express different kinds of um, of focus. So one is just informational focus. So I'm focusing on the kind of answer I give you. And of course, the negative operator should better be there, right? Because it's crucial to, to the new information. And I could also have emphatic focus, which we could say it's scalar focus. So it builds a scale and it says not even the most obvious thing holds, basically, or the minimal thing holds. And I guess uh, it might be that there is a semantic difference, but it's not clear that there has to be a syntactic one. Okay, so maybe the difference in emphasis we see is independent of, of the uh, of the position. That that is one thing. But I think there is some empirical evidence for the fact that you can say that uh, subject uh, NCIs can at least in some cases be uh, focused because we find uh, OSV orders in uh, in the New Testament, right? So we find an object, then we find a subject and then a verb. And in this case, the order is really, you have something where the object is topicalized. For instance, it's a frame setting topic. And then you have the subject, which is the core of the new information. And then we have the verb. So for instance, here I have uh, examples like uh, from the first Corinthians 9.15, something like to mamu So to my reason, as for my reason for boasting, no one will uh, take it away. Okay. So in this case, uh, I'm, I'm just thinking you have a topic. So as for this, no one. And so I think uh, OSV uh, could really obey a, a sort of what we know from the left periphery, a sort of topic focus word order. In that case, you would be kind of forced to say that the subject NCI is in a focus position, I think. But th this doesn't mean that it has to be this way in all the cases. Right, right, right. So, so that's really interesting. So the OSV example, I mean, in theory, that subject could be in a focus position or in a position higher than the verb that is not in a focus position and lower than the object. But that's a great example of a case where it seems to be that that subject is in a focus position. I mean, just the way I would read that. Again, it's so it's so hard with, with these kinds of things because you're like, well, that's how I would read it. But right. it, we don't really know. You know, it's it's so hard to tease out that difference um, because it's, it's, a, it's such a fine semantic difference between, you know, a focus subject and a non-focused exactly. subject yes. yes just to point out though kirk has her dissertation and she says that svo and vso are both potentially neutral orders so she basically basically says right that there is a specifier in t sometimes right so there is a position that for the subject that is not focused that is before the verb where the subject can be but what you're saying is with ncis normally you're going to see them in focus position, or or we don't really know sometimes. Right. So I think, you know, uh, structures with SVOs uh, are potentially compatible also with Kirk's idea that you can also have plain uh, subjects preceding the, the verb at this stage of New Testament Greek. Uh, I think Horrocks' idea fits well, so it because you can always argue that an NCI is somehow focused if not emphatic, then at least uh, marking the informational focus. But right. uh, in a way, nothing forces you 
to go there because um, the kind of focus we are talking about is not necessarily emphatic. And so you could just say it's it's a plain subject. And if I can show, as I think Kirk argues successfully, that there are some plain, right, pre-verbal subjects that are not necessarily focused, then maybe some NCIs could end up there as well. What would be interesting is then to check if they're really adjacent to the verb or if there is some uh, finer grained uh, distributional difference there. Right, intervening elements. But so, so I guess the the uh, the big conclusion here though is you really can't use subject NCIs in this discussion for basic word order in far, in terms of the relative position because they're doing something weird right <laughs> just like pronouns right they're they're not going to behave the same way as a full-fledged you know plain dp with the, you know an article it's just like that's a different element than this these subject ncis Absolutely. And I think this would really be important for those researchers focusing actually on, on, on basic word order, because unfortunately for them, I think their annotation has to be really, really uh, cautious with respect to the different types of, of elements. So I would say, I would expect quantificational elements in general. So not just the negative one, but also universal quantifiers. Uh, uh, so words like uh, everyone, all, but even words like other or each, uh, to be possibly different, because we see it, for instance, also for the history of English, a language that moves from an OV to a VO language, that again, those quantificational elements are those that take longer to, to change or think of French, right? Uh, you use tu and rien, those are the only elements that can still precede participle, j'ai rien dit, uh, because they are different. And I think at some point it becomes lexical, but there are there is certainly a stage where it is categorical, so where it really gets takes all the quantificational elements that have some reason to be in the pre-verbal position in addition to other arguments, and so they they take longer to to change. Yeah, yeah. So so just and this leads into the next question. We'll wrap up here in a, in a minute. But this order of OVS, we kind of touched on this, but just to spell this out more clearly you you are saying that ov is the normal order in classical greek for well for all yes yeah, yeah. well i guess i guess classical greek homeric greek we can say ov is predominant classical greek seems to be a mixed bag we do see with ncis ovs is much more common than we would find without ncis you're saying that there is a focused position before the verb right that this o might move to but the kind of focus we're talking about might not be an emphatic focus. Might again going back to our example, uden um, apokrine. Mm-hmm. In this context, I can actually see um, focus being a very plausible interpretation, mm-hmm. right? Um, but but it's not. You're saying that this ov order um, doesn't necessarily tell us this emphatic focus. Is, is that is that your analysis basically of of OVS with these NCIs? Yeah, yeah. So I, I actually I tend to connect uh, um, the the syntax of negation and focus very strongly, uh, but I think we don't need to say that they move because of focus. They move. They they are not in the position where other elements of their kind are because of focus. Um, we know that from from typology that there is this very strong tendency towards so-called neg first. 
So to express negation as early as possible in your sentence, because negation is quite important and it's quite unexpected. And so you want to have it uh, as early as possible. So languages like German, where negation comes at the end, are really typological rarities. (laughs) So... um, so it might be that uh, an OV with an NCI is just due to the fact that uh, you want an element to express negation as early as possible, mm-hmm. and you have the choice. In this case, the system still allows for objects to to do that, to be before the verb, for this reason, just to mark negation, not necessarily focus. Right. So, so then, again, so people... You know, especially listeners to this podcast, they're going to say, okay, you know, who cares, right? Like (laughs) all this discussion, like why does this matter for how I read? But in this example, what you can't say is because uden is pre-verbal, it has this emphatic focus. That combined with this context of being appalled that all these charges are being against Jesus, right? And then, you know, uden, apocrine, right? This... (laughs) <laughs> you're you're answering nothing, right? That that is again. I don't know if Matthew is teasing out this difference, and and Marcus is not, but it could be for sure. I mean, that's that's a plausible explanation that that Matthew is saying uden, right? Um, and and Mark is not, right? Yes, right. Yeah, actually, so I think this is really interesting because. If you think about the the other right piece of the minimal pair, ukapokrinu, then, well, if you read grammars of classical languages, uh, especially Latin, because there, you know, this doubling is really always suspect, um, suspicious. Sorry, um, you tend to read that uh, authors duplicated the marking of negation to be more emphatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but actually, here it would be the opposite. So the ukapokrino then would be the plain way to say it, and the uden apokrino would be uh, the focus, surprised way to say that. But uh, I think it's a really tricky uh, issue to to one because if you look at the numbers, most of them are are preverbal. So uh, it's the question is really uh, we would need more minimal pairs like that to safely assess this. But it's right. it's, a, it's a fascinating perspective. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, any sort of last conclusions about, I mean, I know we've talked touched on this some, but, you know, changes in word order in New Testament Greek and how that affects the, the NCI system or the negative system in general. Well, let, let me wrap up just by saying that in a way, when I started this, I, I didn't really find what I was looking for because I was expecting to see more of these doubling patterns with the negative marker and the NCI. But I think there are still interesting conclusion to be to be drawn because uh, we understand that uh, objects subjects arguments in general do not behave all the same and there are different tendencies that um, decide their distribution and we we should be aware of this when we do our annotation and also i think this opens up a perspective that i hope also other people will follow to really have a look to the influence, for instance, of potential models. So uh, the big question mark here is, what is the influence of the of the Semitic model, for instance, here? Because, uh, of course, uh, it, it wouldn't be a direct influence for New Testament Greek, but it was in the air. So I tried to have a look at the Septuagint, but I, I said this is just preliminary because I, I my uh, my competences do not allow me to, to check for, for the Semitic original. But I think this is really, this should be done because I think it would really give us some some very interesting perspectives on the topic. 
Yeah, yeah, that that will be a another topic for another day. <laughs> uh, you like, like I said in the beginning, you you do mention the the Septuagint, but it is it's it's so difficult um, to to really tease out the differences in in the translator, right? And and the obviously then the Semitic original and and how their just their translation philosophy is going to affect um, all those things. Um, but yeah, I think that's a that's a great next step because. You know, we we do see this change, right? Like you say, and it is interesting that the New Testament. I mean, I think a very interesting conclusion is that in this respect, the New Testament is very classical, and this the New Testament Greek has often been you know talked about as a not classical Greek language, but you can see classical elements in it, um, and, I, and I think this is you know a very strong one. So yeah, great. We well, we really appreciate you having on. This was a really fun discussion for me. Um, so that's all we have time for. On this episode of the Biblical Languages Podcast, thank you, Chiara, for joining us. Thank you very much for being with us. And thank you to all of our listeners out there who have taken the time to listen to the Biblical Languages Podcast brought to you by Biblingo. We hope you enjoyed the episode.